Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. So if you guys have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And as you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to our dream team who has just been killing it. They did such an incredible job from Friday night to all three services today. They've just been doing it. Can we give a hand for our dream team? Thank you, dream team. But I'm going to preach my guts out. This is the last one. So here we go. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1, says this. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there by the name Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich. Everybody say rich. rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, as he called him by name, Zacchaeus. He said quickly, come down, I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down, took Jesus into his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He had gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, if I have cheated any people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And everybody said amen. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Uh, I want to speak to you for a few moments around this idea of Jesus in my place, Jesus in my place. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for all that you've been doing uh, both through, just all throughout the weekend, Lord, we know that people are gathering all over the planet right now, celebrating this incredible moment in time. God, we thank you so much that the resurrection gives us hope, power, strength. And God, we just pray that uh, you would do something in our hearts today that only you can do. And that we would leave different from when we came in. God, I pray that you would use my words, um, Lord, that they would be from your heart and that you'd be glorified in everything that happens today. Lord, we love you and we give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Look at your neighbor and say, in my place. Look at your second choice and say, your place. Now, has, has anybody in here ever invited somebody to your house, but you forgot you invited them? Meaning they call an hour before they're supposed to be there, really excited to come over, but you forgot. Well, that happened to Jackie and I probably about, I don't know, several years ago now. And it was, it was pretty hysterical. They, they called up. They said, hey, we're so excited to come to your house. And, and uh, I, I kind of put them on hold for a moment. I looked at Jackie like, are you serious? They're coming over now? She's like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And so... So we said, yeah, we're so excited. We've been expecting you. Um, lied through our teeth a little bit and then hung up the phone. And in that, in that moment, we went into Molly made mode. Does anybody understand Molly made mode where you take the kitchen, I'll take the bathroom, let's get it together, right? So we're going around scrambling, trying to get everything together. Has anybody ever taken the pots off of the stove and put them into the oven just to hide them, Right? It was one of those moments. And so we're, we're cleaning up, and my, my, my oldest daughter was, uh, she needs to set the environment. 
You're lighting candles so everything smells good. You're, you're making sure that the Christian music station is on so it sets the atmosphere, right? And then you put the number one best-selling Christian book in the bathroom so everybody knows you're spiritual, right? Has anybody ever done that before? Maybe not. Um, and then they, they knock at the door. You open up the door. And this is a true story. Hey, man, it's so good to see you. We're so glad you're here. And we're exhausted, right? Like just in the nick of time. Come on in. We've been expecting you. And in that moment, you really can't enjoy your company because you're, you're just so exhausted. Now, many people would say, well, that's just good hospitality. And I would agree with that. But I think many times we do things like that not so much for our company but more for us. Because we're afraid of rejection, aren't we? Like we don't want to be that couple that they, you know, when everybody leaves the house, people get into the car. We don't want to be that couple that everybody talks about. Like, honey, did you see their house? My goodness, right? We, nobody wants to be that couple. And what we're afraid of is that if we're, not, if we're not that tidy or if they see that we too have some messes that maybe they're not going to want to come back to, to our place. And, and as funny as that sounds and as crazy um, as that sounds, I think many times we bring that same attitude into our relationship with God. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus, I think we can all agree that maybe there's been a moment where you thought, I'm just a little bit too messy. Maybe if I tidy up a little bit, maybe if I, if I get some things in order, then, then maybe Jesus will want to visit my place. Or maybe you've had the thoughts that would would go something like this, because I have some messes and some issues, I just don't really think Jesus wants anything to do with my place. And then as a follower of Jesus, I think sometimes we get caught in this, this, this rat race or this, this proverbial game of he loves me, he loves me not. That when we're having a good day, we feel like God is all about us, but when we're having a bad day, we feel like he kind of shuns us a little bit until we can get back on our good cycle again. And the problem with that thinking is that we start to define our life based on what we do rather than what Christ has done. You, you see, the, the, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that it's not simply good advice, but good news. You see, advice is something that you do, but news is something that has been done. You see, every other religion on the planet, you are saved by what you do. You are, you know, you might get into heaven if you can cross enough T's, dot enough I's. Every other religion you're saved by following a set of rules, maybe a code of ethics, by following some type of philosophy, and then just maybe you might get in. But Christianity is something completely different. Christianity is, is not a philosophy. Christianity isn't just a collection of ideas. Christianity, in fact, is, is not just a code um, that we follow, but rather Christianity is a person, and his name is Jesus. You see, we, we don't follow Jesus because we have to. We follow Jesus because we get to. Now, I'm not saying that there's no good advice in the gospel of the good news of Jesus, and I'm not saying that there aren't good works to be accomplished because there are both. But what I'm saying is, is, is they are not the first priority because good advice is taken and good works flow from a life that has been radically transformed by the good news. By the good news of what Jesus has done, taking our sin, absorbing our debt upon the cross, and then rising again on the third day as our receipt 
or our guarantee that the debt has been paid. You see, we don't follow him because we have to. We follow him because we get to. We don't follow him because we're trying to earn a place of approval, but rather we're following Jesus because we already have a place of approval as a result of the great exchange that happened on the cross. You see, when Jesus died, a great exchange happened where we, uh, our sins were placed upon him, and in exchange, his righteousness or his right standing was placed on us. And as a result of that, when God the Father sees us, he doesn't see our mess or our issues. He sees the perfect spotless record of his son. That's good news. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I got some issues. So grateful that God has covered me. So grateful for that great exchange. You see, we don't follow Jesus just because of, of some teaching he left behind, but rather a promise that was made that he would rise from the dead that solidifies everything that he said and taught. Now, I don't know about you, but the resurrection is pretty important. Like, like Christianity cannot exist without the resurrection. And, and when you think about it, think about this for a moment. This is where a lot of us wrestle. Like, I could buy into some biblical principles, but, but the resurrection that Jesus really rose, I'm just not sure if I can, if I can wrap my mind around that. I'm not sure if I can, if I can buy into that. And I get it, but can I just tell you, man, the resurrection is so huge. In fact, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look what Paul said. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. What I'm doing right now, Paul said, why are you even doing it? And your faith is useless. Because Christianity, once again, is not a philosophy but a person. Christianity is not a religion but rather a relationship with Christ. And if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then he couldn't even be a good teacher because some of the things that he claimed to be would have been a, 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 a flat-out lie. They, it, it, I mean, the things that, that he spoken or that he claimed to be, I mean, it, they, would have not, they, they wouldn't have been true. So apart from the resurrection, not even his teaching would hold up. You might be able to garner some good principles, but if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then Paul says everything is useless. And maybe you're here today and there's a wrestle in your heart with this reality. Maybe you're dragged here by somebody. It's kind of that, that one day a year where, you know, you're, you finally gave in, like, okay, I'll go. But you wrestle with this idea of Jesus rising from the dead. It just seems so hard to grasp. But can I just tell you, like, I, I understand. Because it was hard for me to grasp for a long time. And it was also hard for a gentleman by, name, by the name of Lee Strobel to grasp. Now, if you've never heard of Lee Strobel, a movie came out about his life called The Case for Christ. He, he wrote an incredible book on, on his journey. But he was a Yale-educated uh, attorney. Uh, he was an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And his wife came to faith in Christ, and he was livid. Right? He starts to see, you know, she's changing, and really for the better, but it's, in his mind, you're being manipulated, like, what is going on? What's happening to you? And, and so he was, he was staunch against it. And in his mind, you're not going to bring that Jesus stuff into this house. So we thought, with my background, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set out to disprove Christianity and to debunk the resurrection. So we set out on a 600-day journey, spending thousands of hours investigating, traveling you know, to and from, gathering and, and doing whatever he could to gather information to build a case against Christ. And this was his conclusion. Check it out. 
He says, by November 8th of 1981, my legend thesis, to which I had doggedly clung to for so many years, had been thoroughly dismantled. What's more, my journalistic skepticism toward the supernatural had melted in light of the breathtaking historical evidence that the resurrection of Jesus was real. It was a real historical event. In fact, my mind could not conjure up a single explanation that fit the evidence of history nearly as well as the conclusion that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the one and only Son of God. The atheism I had embraced for so long buckled under the weight of historical truth. It was a stunning and radical outcome, certainly not what I had anticipated when I embarked on this investigative process. But it was, in my opinion, a decision compelled by the facts, all of which led me to the so what question. If this is true, what difference does it make? See, the reality, ladies and gentlemen, is Jesus really rose from the dead and and the evidence is there. I mean, Jesus lived his life in public. He died his death in public. He rose again. I mean, think about this. He was buried in a tomb of a well-known man by by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, uh, uh, kind of a a prolific guy of his day. And so it wasn't like Jesus was buried in this unknown tomb. No, it was marked by a man who was very wealthy, very known. And after he rose from the dead, he appeared to over 500 witnesses, which in our day in the court of law, one witness can seal the deal. But 500. And so the facts are there. Like if you went out and embarked on a journey just like Lee, you may not choose to agree with the facts, but you won't be able to deny them. On top of that, over almost 2 billion people will gather across the globe over this weekend celebrating the resurrected Savior. Lives that have been radically transformed by the good news of Jesus, by the reality that Jesus is alive many of which are celebrating today in the midst of severe persecution that could even cost their life, but it's worth it. Why? Because they cannot deny the reality of the risen Savior. Now, I want you to, I want you to think with me just for a moment. If what Jesus said, um, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then what Jesus said is really true. And I want to go back to Lee's question, because what do we do with that then? Like, how does that affect our life? Look what Lee said. He continues, And Lee said it like this, if Jesus is the son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They are divine insights on which I can confidently build my life. Now, I want you to think for a moment, what are you building your life upon right now? And has it been working? See, I don't know what you've been building your life on. But what I can tell you is that God's word has stood the test of time. It's outlasted kings and kingdoms, civilization, emperors and empires. In fact, people that have tried to snuff out the word of God, meaning the Bible, people that have tried to eliminate it um, have always came up short with no success. Because God said my word is going to last and endure forever. Bottom line. And so if that's true and everything that Jesus said is true, then also the mission of why he came is also true. Of the very reason why... God went through all of this trouble, the death, the resurrection, all of this trouble to get to us. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what he said is true, and his mission is also true. And we find that in Luke chapter 19. Check it out what it says. It says it like this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a little bit perplexing to me. 
Like, why would God go through all the trouble to seek and to save those who could care less about him? People who aren't even thinking about him. Like, why would he go through the whole, you know, stepping out of heaven, bodily form, suffering on a cross, rising from the dead? Why would he go through all of this to seek and to save those who are lost? And I don't think I'm the only one that's perplexed by this. I think Luke was also a little bit perplexed. Because Luke is the only writer of the four Gospels that include this story. And could it be that Luke had, you know, such a scientific mind as a medical doctor? He's trying to compute this equation. That how in the world can an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, infinitely holy God pursue a notorious sinner like Zacchaeus? A guy who had everything going for him on the outside. On the outside, he looked great, but was lost and dying on the inside. Now, I can relate with what it feels like to put on a front. I can identify with looking great on the outside but really being lost severely and dying on the inside. Are you guys tracking with me on that? I mean, as I look out today, all of you look amazing. Like you guys look great today. Everybody looks saved today. It's Easter Sunday. Everybody looks saved. Right? Smiles on the faces. It's kind of okay. Some of you guys are like, I'm just trying to endure the service, get out of here and get to lunch. But you look great. But truth of the matter is, even as I say those words, you know that you are sitting in a place right now where everything looks great on the outside, but there's some areas that you're lost and dying on the inside. And it could be in a few, a few different areas. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. Maybe you're, you're, you're lost emotionally. Maybe you're, you're stressed out. You feel the gravity and the pressure of life. Like you're breathing, but you're not alive. You're existing, but you're not living. Like maybe it's been financial pressure and you've been trying to figure all this out. Maybe there's this great sense of loneliness that has left you in, in a place of dis-ease emotionally. Like maybe right now everything is going perfect. Like everything is great in your life right now, but there's still this this longing on the inside of you that says, is this it? Is this it? Is this as good as it gets? All your ducks are in a row. Everything looks great. But something on the inside is still screaming, it's not enough. Maybe you're you're lost relationally. And I think this is a real tough one. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot that down. Lost relationally. And this is where maybe you went through a divorce recently. Maybe you've been through several divorces. Maybe there was a relationship that you were in that currently went south. And you're trying to figure out, man, what in the world am I going to do? Maybe you find yourself in a moment right now where there's a division in your family. And the circle of people that, that you gather with, there's, there's no harmony there. And you feel the weight of that. Maybe there's a relationship that's getting ready to go south and you feel the tension rising. See, the the tough part with relationships is that that pain lasts for a long time. Sometimes it's worse than physical because it just seems to go the distance. Like maybe today you've lost a loved one and you're just trying to figure out, man, what am I going to do with this? And then the last one I want to talk about today is maybe you're lost spiritually. And this is the one that I 
I take uh, a huge interest in, of course, as a pastor, because I believe this one affects the rest of them. And maybe today you, you just have a sense in your heart that, that God is super far away. That when you try to pray, it feels like your prayers hit the ceiling. And, or maybe you have a hard time with the whole idea of God. And even if you were to imagine God, he seems kind of like a concept in the cosmos that's just lost out there, completely detached and irrelevant to your life. Maybe that's where you find yourself. And you're trying to navigate this whole thing. Maybe you grew up in church and, and you had a bad experience. Maybe you hated church. You swore, I'll never go back to church because people that you should have been able to trust really disappointed you. And, and you feel kind of that, that, that sense on the inside of, God, you just seem so far away. I'm just not sure about you. And this one is, the, this one is huge. Because truthfully, Spiritually, your spirit is what's going to last forever. This one is the most critical. Because your spirit is going to last for all eternity. Now, here's the good news. The good news is if you're lost and dying in some of these areas, that there's a promise for us as we put our faith in Christ, as we put our faith in the resurrected Savior. And Paul gives it to us in Romans chapter 8. Look what Paul says. Paul says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Like, just think about that for a moment. That the same spirit and the same power that brought Christ from the dead, Paul said, is available for you. And not just when you die to go to be with him in eternity, but, but you can experience that right now, right here in this moment. Not just then, but right now in your seat. This resurrection power, as he continues, and he says, just as Christ, just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Meaning this is that Christ wants to give life. Christ wants to bring life where there's death. He wants to bring direction where you're lost, not just later in eternity, but right now where you're sitting. That's great news. That's incredible news. You see, uh, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to jot this down. It all boils down to this, is that the resurrection is more than an event that happened. It's more than an event that happened, but an experience to be had. Like, I'm just not here to tell you today that there was this an event of the resurrection. I'm here to, to tell you today that you can experience the resurrection power of the risen Savior of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's just... That's great news, but, but it kind of leads to the logical question. It's really cute, your little presentation, Pastor Matt, I love how you, you know, pieced everything together. But how am I supposed to get that? I don't feel much power in my life. Maybe you're even a follower of Jesus. And you just felt like, man, there's been a disconnect. See, it's really going to be found in a word that I, none of us really like. I'm glad you asked the question because I'm going to tell you the answer, but you're probably not going to like it. Because it's, 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 it's a word that I don't even like. And if you're taking notes, jot this down. It's the word surrender. It's the word surrender. See, I love these old school, like, war movies. Not old school. I mean, old school, is, that's, that's kind of a relative term today. Um, Braveheart, Gladiator, those types of movies, Right? All the guys are like, I knew I came to the right church. But at the end of these battles, a lot of times there is somebody who lost the battle 
who's been outnumbered or defeated, and they're waving this thing called the white flag. The white flag has this notion of surrender. And I don't know about you, but the white flag has never been a sign of victory to me. I mean, the white flag has always been a sign of defeat. So it's kind of ironic that we would use or think of the word surrender as a potential, a potential way to victory. Because it just doesn't make sense in our world. It's just not how things operate. You surrender because you've been defeated. That's why we love to argue so much. Because we don't want to surrender. Why? Because if we do, we feel like we lose the argument. Isn't that true? And the problem for us is we don't want to surrender because we love control. We love to control, don't we? Like we want to control anything and everything that we, we possibly can. We want to control even when we're not really in control, but we think we're in control. We still like to think we're controlling something. But surrender and victory, those just don't equate according to the world. But see, God's kingdom, it works a little bit different. God's kingdom, there's a reversal of values. In fact, it was no different in Jesus' day. Matter of fact, Jesus accomplished the greatest victory that mankind has ever known, conquering hell, sin, death, and shunning the grave. How? Not by lording and dominating us, though he could have, but by surrendering his life as a ransom for many, by giving his life away that others might live. I, it, it sounds really noble, but many times we wouldn't consider that as a victory. And even in Jesus' day, when they were looking at him on the cross, the disciples were like, yeah, this is great. We're winning. They were looking at the cross like, bro, what happened? We're losing. Like, it's not supposed to, it's not supposed to work like this. And Jesus is like, man, settle down. Because I know it looks like hell has won the greatest victory of all times. And they're gonna, I'm going to be killed as I've laid down my life for you. I'm going to be put in the grave, but there's a day coming. On day three, according to the Jewish calendar, I'm rising up again. The greatest victory that mankind has ever known, but they didn't catch it then. But can I tell you who's catching it? Is corporate CEOs are catching it today. If you look at a lot of the Fortune 500 companies that are out there right now, they're starting to learn this principle of reversal of values. They're starting to see that as a CEO, it's far better not to lord over your employees with, with a dominating um, approach because of your position. But they're starting to realize that a, a servant leadership, a servant attitude at the top is going to move your company forward a lot faster and, and create a, such a culture that would make you flourish a lot better. And so if you look at some of the top corporations today, who's at the top? Servant leadership. Where the CEOs are coming down saying, man, how can we get up under our employees? How can we get up under, uh, you know, our, our people and release them and their potential? And what can we do? You know what? I got a big bonus. I'm going to throw a party for the team. What? Are you serious? And it's, and it's shifting. They're starting to see that, man, if I want to be first, I need to be last. They're starting to see that it's better to give than receive. They're starting to understand this. And they're going after money, which blessed their hearts. But today, I'm, I'm concerned for your soul. I want you to catch this not for a profit. I want you to catch this because, man, God wants to bring life where there's death and direction where you're lost. Are you tracking with me on that? 
And so I think Jesus, he sums it up best in Matthew. He says it this way. Jesus always says it the best. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? What Jesus is saying, you you guys want to know the way up? It's down. You want to know the way to life? Give it away. Come down off the throne of your heart and invite me on top in my rightful place. And you're going to experience life like you could have never imagined, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. I mean, this is huge. This, this, this This is a big deal. And so I would propose to you that a lot of Christians, we still don't quite understand this a lot. Let me explain. A lot of Christians, many times, we put a huge emphasis on obedience to God, which is huge and very central, let me say. But how many of you know that you can obey God and shift your behavior for a moment, but your heart be far away from him? And so I would propose to you that, that before obedience, surrender sits on top of that. Because surrender is a posture of our heart. I love how John Tyson said it. He says it like this. He says, surrender is an open posture of love. Surrender is based not on duty but on trust. It is a free response and attitude that is open to any and all possibilities our Father brings to us. Isn't that beautiful? See, some of you guys thought uh, you were going to come to church today and I'm just going to tell you a bunch of things to do. I'm not going to start there. I want to first invite you to consider a different posture of your heart. To to actually trust Jesus and and see what happens from that place. You see, as, as we think about surrender... It all sounds great, but the truth is we love control. And so to, to try to, to let go of our life and entrust it to Christ, how in the world do we, do we actually do that? How does this play out in real time? Because we don't like to let go. And I think as we look at the life of Zacchaeus in just the next couple of minutes, I think we're going to find a few things that will cause us to, to loosen the, the white knuckle grip a little bit more. From a man who had it all, and was willing to let it all go. And let me give you just a little bit of context. So Zacchaeus, he's, he's running the city of Jericho. I mean, this guy is like a gangster, right? Um, but, but probably a professional one. And uh, Jericho was a very wealthy city at the time. They were known for their balsam trees. The balsam tree looks kind of like a Christmas tree. It's known for its, its, its aromas, its, its healing qualities, its soothing abilities. And it was just, it, it was really kind of like a desert oasis of the day. And, and he's running the town. He's the chief tax collector, meaning uh, he's over other tax collectors. And so he's obviously been doing this for a long time. He's been empowered by the Romans to collect the tax that is due for the day. But he's also able to charge a cut for himself on top. So if the Romans charge a dollar, he might, you know, charge two because he's got a car payment and a house note and all that stuff. And he has a great house on the hill, beautiful view, nothing wrong with that except it's from robbing people of their 401K and their lunch money. So... So Jesus is passing through Jericho. He didn't find that funny at third service. Come on, let's laugh. Um, Jesus is passing through Jericho, and, and Zacchaeus has got to take a look. But he has a little bit of a struggle because he's shorter in stature. And he can't see over the crowd, and so he's going to do what anybody tries to do. He's looking for an advantage. So he runs to the sycamore tree, climbs up as high as he can to see what he could see, right? And Jesus is passing his way. Jesus is passing his way. And he just wants to get a glimpse. 
Like he's heard about this man. Some of his tax collecting buddies have left to follow him. As a Jewish young boy, he would have understood clearly that the Messiah was going to come. He, he heard the stories from the prophets. And, and maybe could this be, I'm not sure, but I just want to get a glimpse. I want to get a glimpse of him. We see the first thing that I believe helps us to let go of this white knuckle grip. And if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. The first thing is this, is that if you are looking for Jesus, you need to understand that he's already looking for you. He goes in Luke chapter 19, it continues, and Jesus is approaching this particular place. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, almost as if maybe God was planning on this all along. See, I think it's funny. Many times we think we get God's attention by climbing uh, certain trees of, of good deeds, of works, of, you know, if I can do enough good things, then maybe God will see me. But can I just tell you from the beginning, ladies and gentlemen, it's always been about grace. It's always been about grace. And he gets to this spot. And now there's a moment. He looked up and he said to him. Now get this picture. Zacchaeus is trying to get a glimpse. Jesus comes right under his tree. Zacchaeus is feeling like the man right now. Like I picked the best spot. Like if he does anything cool, it's going to happen right here. Yes. And then it happens. He looks up. Jesus. Zacchaeus looks down. Probably an awkward moment. Right? Like, uh, so. And imagine Zacchaeus being rejected by religious leaders for a long time. Now the guy of the hour, the, of the day, is staring at him in the eyes, the very son of God. And he says it. Zacchaeus. <gasps> what? You know my name? You talking to me? No, I'm talking to the other little guy in the tree. Do you know my name? You know, it's funny. They say that one of the greatest joys of a human heart is hearing their name come off another person's lips. I mean, all my issues, all my stuff. Zacchaeus probably hadn't been called by his name in a long time. He'd probably been called a lot of other names, but not his name. You know, later, earlier this year, I had the privilege of going to a, a men's conference, and there was a pastor there that I've looked up to for a long time, an older pastor. And uh, the auditorium seats about 1,000 people, and I was in the very back, and I was talking to a crowd of people. And, and this pastor, I've never met him before in my life, he makes his way through the crowd, and he grabs me, and he says, what's up, Lace? And that's my last name, Lacey, right? What's up, Lace? And it was, it was one of those moments I, uh, what's up? How are you? I, I wasn't starstruck. I was just honored. Like, why would you? You don't even know. How do you know my name? The next day in worship, he makes his way through the front of the crowd, grabs me. What's up, Lace? You doing good today? Great. This is awesome. And then, let me show you a picture. Then he calls me up on stage and uses me in an illustration. Lace, come up here. Come up here. And i tell you what, I've never been so honored and excited to be used my entire life. <laughs> and it, it, and I, I jumped off the platform that day. I went home in, in my car. I, I didn't say this to any of, the, the, any of the other services. You guys get, like, the full deal. Um, but I, I started to cry because I, I just felt such a sense of value. Him pursuing me was so intentional. And I just felt like God was 
was healing something on the inside of me. He's, he's a pretty, you know, well-renowned, respected leader, and I don't know a whole lot of leaders that, you know, I'm, I'm you know, in, in, in certain terms, I'm really not on the totem pole. And there was such an intentionality, there was such a value. He knew my name. Ladies and gentlemen, how much more when God calls your name do you feel that sense of value, that sense of intentionality? Zacchaeus. Listen, you may feel like another name on the planet, but God says, you have a name and I know it. The grip starts to loosen a little bit. Second thing is this. Second thing is we can let go of our tree because Jesus embraced his now, Zacchaeus was short. He had some struggles. So in order to see, he had to climb up this tree. And I think for many of us, the Bible says that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us have fallen short in different areas of our life. And whenever we fall short, many times we climb these proverbial trees trying to see in life, trying to get a picture of what life is all about, right? We climb trees of success, hoping that maybe this is going to satisfy. We get to the top and realize maybe it's the wrong tree. We climb trees of, uh, of relationships hoping that maybe this one is going to, you know, Jerry Maguire and complete me. And we find out it's the wrong tree. Too many branches on that one. Right? We, we, we climb the, these different trees hoping to find, hoping to see just a little bit clearly. Many of us, we climb trees of protection that look like bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment hoping just to keep our head above the water so we can see that maybe we're not losing as bad as we feel. And Jesus looks up. Look what he says to Zacchaeus. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, now for many of us, this seems like, a, like a, an easy request, but could you imagine, Zacchaeus, what are you going to do to me? Zacchaeus is pretty excited, so it seems like the vibes are, are, are going pretty well. But I think for many of us, as, as, as Jesus is, is inviting us to climb down, we want to hold on. What are you going to do to me down there, Lord? Are you going to stone me? I know I've done a lot of bad things. What's your intentions with me? And Jesus sits at the bottom of our trees saying, come down. Come down from that anxiety. Come down from that fear. Come down from that pride. Come down for that false sense of security. Come down for those false idols. Come down and let me give you rest. Let me give you life. Let me resurrect some things on the inside of you. Come down. But we want to hold on. Because it's really hard to let go. Even when we know that things are wrong or dysfunctional for us, we still love to hold on to certain things, don't we? See, I, I couldn't think of a better illustration of this than a trapeze artist. Let me show you a, a, a quick picture of what this looks like. Now, a trapeze artist, they have to let go of the trapeze, which is this little piece of wood that hangs by, by two cables there. And they're completely suspended in the air, nothing holding them up depending on the other person to catch them. And, and the, the trapeze, I think, is, is a great picture of surrender because really a definition of surrender is you're placing all of your weight on someone or something. And this is a great picture of that. Now, these guys make it look really easy, but it's really scary to let go trusting that you're going to be caught. 
But they do have a little bit of a secret that many of you guys may not know of. But if you've been to a circus, you might hear. Or if you go to like a Cirque du Soleil, you'll probably, you know, you might hear in, in the faint distance. Is they have an instructor on the bottom looking up at the entire picture. And the instructor yells the word H-E-P, hip, hip. And they know as soon as he yells hep, that they're to release. And that they release at the time that he asked them to, that there's going to be a smooth transition. They're going to get caught. Hep. Hep. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is, is calling us down from our tree because he sees the big picture. He's looking at us and he's saying, hep. Hep. In fact, Psalm chapter 1 or Psalm chapter 139, I'm just to read this to you and I'm almost done here wrapping up. Psalm 139 says it this way. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You're there. You know everything that I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. Your pl you place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. And then he goes on and he continues and says that you've, you've made even the innermost parts of me. You see, we have a God that's not looking from, you know, just one type, of, uh, one type of angle. He sees the entire picture. He sees the beginning from the end. And he's saying, I want your life to transition in such a way that that's going to change you forever. And you can trust me because I see it all. Hep, come down. You know this word trapeze, it comes from the word trapezia or trapezo. And in the Greek, it means table. And you know, the only time that this word is found in the scriptures is in the New Testament. As Jesus is sitting around a table with his disciples. What we would known to be the Last Supper. And what was he doing? He was letting them know, hey guys, I'm getting ready to let go of everything. So that you could have life. I'm getting ready to embrace my tree so that you can climb down from yours. I'm not just an instructor that sees the beginning from the end. I'm not just one that knows all things and is just kind of disconnected from your life. No, I came and I paid it all. I put it all on the line so that you would know that as you release yourself, as you climb down from that tree, as you climb off the throne of your life, that it's not without... Um, it's not into the hands of somebody that does not know what they're doing, but rather the hands of someone that knows everything and has given it all to show that you can trust me. Help. Let go. Climb down off the throne of your heart. Lose your life. Surrender so that you can find it. Because what you'll find is I'm enough. Which leads me to the last point, is invite him into your place. Zacchaeus is there. He's, he let go. And look what he says. He's pumped. Look what he says. He says, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus into his house with great excitement and joy. And you know what the, the Bible says that the people were, what in the world? Jesus is going to be the guest of that notorious sinner. They don't even call him by his name. And Zacchaeus is like, yup. 
No time to clean up. No time to prepare. Jesus just comes right into his place. Knowing that in just a, a little bit of time, Jesus is going to die on the cross to not only come into his place, but to take his place. And then to embody and dwell in him forever. That Zacchaeus might experience resurrection power. Zacchaeus is face to face with the resurrection and the life. And we don't know what this conversation we don't know what happened. We don't know what was said. I, I think that maybe we don't know what was said because we probably try to make a formula out of it. But it's never been about a formula. It's always been about a person. And he's in this conversation with the resurrection and the life and, and something shifts in his heart so much so. Look, look what happens. He goes on and says, meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. Now look how his language changes. Lord. Something happened in that conversation where Zacchaeus said, you're the Lord. You're him. And so now he's pumped. He's like, what? Like the Lord is in my place. Like, like the grace and love and the value, the intentionality. In, in the midst of all my mess and all my issues, Lord. And if I've cheated anybody, he's not doing this because he has to. He can't wait to give his stuff away. If I've cheated any people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. And you know, his tax collector friends or maybe some of his colleagues are like, we're going to go broke. Like you've robbed a lot of people. You're not even having the money to pay all this back. And the question begs, is Jesus enough? Could he really be enough that would cause this man who was living the proverbial American dream to let go of it all, to let go of his tree that he clung so tightly to. Could it be that Jesus is really enough? Well, I would tell you, no, he's not. He's more than enough. He's more than enough. Zacchaeus waved his white flag.